Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real from evolution. You're listening to the Science of the Local podcast with me, Hamish Clark. Today's episode features an interview with the director of the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory at the University of Sydney, Ollie Jay. We had a few technical issues during the call, so please bear with us. I choose to blame them on the NBN. And if you're listening to this before the 20th of May 2018, then please come along to our next event, which features Peter Ferris myth-busting the NBN. Back to the interview with Ollie, who was dialing in from the Australian Open Tennis Tournament for business reasons. So you're, you're there for the tennis. It's a perfect segue to talk about your, your research. Can you... Uh, give the listeners an idea of what uh, what's thermoregulation and and why does it matter in places such as the Australian Open tennis? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, in in a, in a basic sense, thermoregulation is uh, looking at the way in which the human body maintains body temperature. So, um, there's, we have uh, autonomic responses that uh, prevent our body temperature getting too high. When it gets too high, it can actually lead to uh, quite negative health effects, such as uh, heat-related illness and, in very severe cases, heat stroke or death. So um, a lot of the research that we do looks at uh, uh, certain vulnerable populations to extreme heat events. And this can be a range of people. It can, it can be in, in, the, in the context of extreme heat events and, 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 and heat waves in the general population. We're looking at people who, such as the elderly who have age-related decrements in their ability to sweat. And sweating is one of the main ways in which we keep cool. Uh, or stop our body temperature getting too high. Uh, people on certain types of prescription medications, such as beta blockers, uh, people with cardiovascular diseases. On the other end of the spectrum of the people that we look at um, are, are elite athletes. So um, they're, they're more, they, they can be vulnerable uh, for very different reasons. So, um, they're putting um, themselves through this on purpose. They're putting themselves, they're very highly motivated, they're very fit, and therefore they, uh, they work at very high rates of metabolic heat production. So they generate an enormous amount of heat inside their body and they need to be able to dissipate that heat in order to stop their body temperature getting too high. And then when the environmental conditions are very hot and or humid, um, that can really kind of um, uh, compromise their ability to keep cool. And if they're highly motivated in a very competitive environment, uh, they can end up uh, somewhat ignoring some of the cues that their body is giving them uh, to to kind of slow down and moderate their their, their heat production. I can imagine um, mixed messages. Do I win or do I survive? (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of these elite athletes, they get here because – because they're uh, because they're you know, extraordinarily motivated individuals as well as very talented as well. So. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's no, it's a fascinating area. So how did you get into it, if I could ask? Yeah. So I started. Um, I got involved in thermoregulation as an honor student when I was an undergraduate at the Loughborough University in the UK. So um, I had the privilege of being supervised for my honors project uh, by Professor Ken Parsons, who's an internationally leading uh, thermal ergonomist. And uh, so it kind of snowballed from there. I ended up doing my PhD um, uh, on a very different topic. It was looking at uh, frostbite thresholds in cold environments. And then, um, yeah, and then I started postdocing in Canada. Uh, I was a professor at the, or an associate professor at the University of Ottawa uh, until 2013. And then I moved to the University of Sydney back in 2014. And, uh, and here I am. Yeah. Okay. So was it something you kind of consciously pursued? Uh, did you kind of fall into it? Um, how did it I was kind quite, of evolve? Quite, 
quite serendipitous, really. I, I think um, I don't think I went to university thinking this is what I want to do, but um, started started doing it and um, really enjoyed the research process. And uh, I think I found that I was re- relatively good at it. So um, and then it just yeah, it just kind of and then opportunities kind of uh, blossom from there and uh, with the help of uh, many people along the way, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So um, can I ask um, about the travel? It seems a big part of being a, a scientist these days is being prepared to travel. Is that something you wanted to do or you felt you had to do or combination? Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I guess, um, I mean, one of the things that I um, I got uh, that really kind of got me involved in research in the first place, one of the things that really appealed to me from a research perspective is that there was a lot of opportunity to see different parts of the world and potentially work in different parts of the world, which is what I ended up doing. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, there is quite a lot of travel. And uh, when I, uh, I guess I'm still relatively young and it still is quite appealing. But uh, as, as I get a little older, especially now being in Australia, you have to travel quite extensively to get to, 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 to get anywhere yeah exactly right. yeah so it doesn't quite hold the appeal that it did when i was slightly younger but yes. still I, I still an aspect of it that i really enjoy so, yeah 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 okay um so uh after australia then perhaps the middle east or some even hotter climate yeah yeah i, th- I think that i'm uh, quite quite happy where i am right now so um that's a good yeah, yeah I mean, we, so, do, we do have that's right. cold climates here don't we well, yeah. Um, when I, my previous place was in uh, in Ottawa, which is in, in Ontario, in Canada, and it gets extremely hot. So when we were um, going to the, uh, the the test match on on January seventh, there was a, something like a sixty five or seventy degrees Celsius difference in the air temperature between uh, Sydney and in Ottawa. So um, it's quite the quite the extreme difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so can I ask about um, you were talking about ergonomics and how does uh, what is ergonomics and how does that fit in, in into it? And I'll give you my uh, lay ignorant um, uh, definition, which is um, it, it's the chairs that we use in the office. That's right. That's the that's, that's the very the very uh, traditional and quite narrow interpretation of ergonomics. That's to people are most most familiar with. So, right. So yeah, the traditional interpretation of ergonomics is uh, is, is, is tables and chairs and and people working on computers. But um, the, uh, the, what this real definition is, is examining how the human body interacts with the surrounding environment and how, uh, we, um, how that impacts our ability to perform work. So, um, so we're, we're next to the road here. It's probably a bit too loud, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's uh, interesting. It gives the people a, a feel for where we are. <laughs> I had one yeah. interview with uh, an ecologist on his, his back deck and we had birds chirping the whole time, so it seemed quite Oh, okay. Well, that, well, well Okay, that's okay then. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, that's fine. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um, uh, so maybe, be... maybe I can just just follow up on on that the last Please question. Do, so, yeah. so so we look at uh, um, environmental ergonomics. Um, so that's really looking at um, particularly thermal ergonomics. It's examining how humans interact with their thermal environments, which is determined by uh, four primary factors: it's temperature, which we're familiar with, but also thermal radiation. Uh, wind and also humidity. So how those four environmental factors and the two personal factors, which are how much activity you're engaging in and also the type of um, uh, clothing or equipment you're wearing. And all six of those parameters interact to determine uh, how you respond to a thermal environment in terms of how hot you get, how, how, much, how much sweat you have to produce to, to keep body temperature in a safe in a safe range. And then ultimately that impacts your ability to do all types of work, whether it's, um, uh, whether it's uh, work that requires 
requires uh, a high level of cognitive function or also work that requires a high level of uh, physical activity um, and skill. Um, is there a lot of individual difference in how our bodies can kind of tolerate heat? Do you find uh, are some athletes, for example, have some kind of amazing threshold or are they up against the same wall that we all are? Yeah, and we, we all, yeah, so... so um, we all really have the, the, the ultimate threshold. So the, the point at which we would experience heat stroke and heat illness um, is, 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 is reasonably, in, you know, it's pretty much in the same range of body temperatures, so quite high body temperatures, particularly if it's accompanied by dehydration and uh, extra uh, excess um, cardiovascular load. But the, the individual response to, to, to a given activity in a given environment is very, very, very variable between individuals. Actually, that's something that we've really investigated quite um, comprehensively in the last five or six years in my laboratory is trying to get a better handle on what the individual determinants are of a person's uh, particular response to a certain environment. So we've got to the point now where, so, you know, typically we'd have conversations with people where people you know, say, oh, well, I'm a heavy sweater or I'm a light sweater. But now we've been able to figure out exactly what factors contribute to to sweating, and we can now pretty much describe around about 80 to 90 percent of the variability that we see in an right. individual's sweat rate through okay. various factors. Yeah, that's a high, a high amount of var uh, variability explained. Uh, I work in bushfires myself yeah, yeah. and have some data sets with a very depressingly low amount of variability explained in some, mm. some of the things I've looked at. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think from a, from a sweating point of view, that's really quite important for for uh, planning hydration requirements and needs. Um, you know, if we're looking at, uh, even in situations such as disaster relief efforts, for example, is, uh, and if you've got to be able to estimate how much fresh water is needed for, you know, a large number of people and you've got to bring it all in, then uh, having that level of actually would actually be quite, is actually quite, quite valuable. Yes, yeah, I can imagine. Um, so it sounds like you've had a reasonable amount of interaction with, um, uh, end users or decision makers or people outside of academia is that true and, and how have you found that yeah absolutely so um i mean that's 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 come about um uh so we're, we're doing work with uh, people uh, the general population um with respect to, to heat waves i think i mentioned that earlier on and the uh, and trying to mitigate the the effects of of the health the health impacts of heat waves on on the most vulnerable in the community and what a lot of people maybe uh, are not aware of is that heat waves kill more people every year than all other natural disasters put together yeah it's phenomenal. Um, and that's incredible yeah and that's true in australia as well as uh, other countries around the world and um and i think the reason that that doesn't get as quite quite as much airtime as as the other type of natural disasters is that it's it's what we call a, a silent killer it's Absolutely. the um, mm -hmm. it's 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 the, it's the natural disaster that uh, really is not all that spectacular to to the to to, to the naked eye. Mm. It's and, a little bit um, like climate change, and it's hard to see in some ways. It's insidious. Mm. It's 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 mm. in the background. It's mm. and, and, and and it's and it's real and it's happening exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, working with those uh, vulnerable populations and trying to come up with accessible, um, ecologically valid solutions for the most vulnerable. Is really, really the health effects of heat waves. Um, for example, it's, it's you know it's no good us developing a really expensive cooling suit, for example, mm -hmm. because the most vulnerable are people who don't have access to that type of type yeah. of thing. So we want to make sure that the solutions that we derive are are accessible in a relatively low resource environment. Yeah, okay. um, and we, we're, we're quite fortunate in the 
at the end of last year is that we received a large grant from the National Health and Medical Research Council to support this work. So um, we're really excited about that. Uh, in terms of other end users, um, we, we've, we've dealt with quite a few end users um, in a sports context. So uh, we do some work with Cricket Australia, looking at heat policies with respect to that. Um, uh, and also um, uh, we're starting to, uh, to, to examine the same situation with respect to tennis because uh, that's performing in hot environments. And also uh, we've, uh, we've partnered with the National Rugby League as well. So um, we developed their extreme heat policy. Um, their new extreme heat policy was actually used in the last, um, the last World Cup that was hosted in Australia, so the Rugby League World Cup that was in the last year. Um, there was concerns for, in that tournament on account of the fact that some of the games were being played in very hot, humid environments, such as Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea, uh, Cairns in are Australians particularly um, stupid in holding sporting events in the middle of summer? Oh, no, I don't think so. I, I think, um, I mean, the, my, my argument has always been is that uh, it can be as hot as you as, as you like, as long as we have strategies to, to minimise the strain that develops within the athletes. So with the better that we understand the, 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 the uh, critical conditions at which risk is unacceptably high, um, you know, there's no reason why we, because it's not, it's not extremely hot all the time, and um, so, so that, that, that's, I don't think that's necessarily, you know, the solution is not to have it or to have it at different times of the year. Um, you know, it's a distinct feature of the Australian climate, um, and I think it's just, um, it's just being sensible in the way in which we manage the risk and estimate, predict the risk in advance as well, and having really good strategies to help uh, athletes cope uh, with, with, with the extreme conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how receptive do you think policymakers are to the science that you and your colleagues come up with? Uh, is it something they can kind of implement and run with straight away, or do they, they need to juggle that with a host of other competing demands? Yeah. Well, I think what the, the big key for us is actually working with the stakeholders right from the get-go. So I think one, one thing that um, academics and scientists have maybe a history of, of doing is doing this science without collaboration with the end users and then we develop you know in that in that scenario one ends up developing solutions that are not practical and they're not are not compatible with the, the reality of the of the case on the ground so um, what we make sure that we do is that we, we try to collaborate with with the organization such as the NRL such as Cricket Australia etc so we're answering the questions that they that are most pertinent for them and the solutions that we put in place are compatible with uh, the way in which in which they, uh, uh, you know, with the other considerations that they that they have. Um, an example is, you know, what we might do is 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 find not just one solution, but we might find two or three different solutions that are equally as as effective. And um, then then the end user or the organisation, the policymakers, can then choose which of those three they would like to implement. When they take into account other uh, other factors associated with club, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Um, so, can I get a, a an idea from you, maybe a quick uh, survey of what you think some of the kind of cutting edge areas of the field are? What are the the most active areas of research or biggest kind of questions that we have? I mean, I think for, for, from from our perspective, that the, 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 there are kind of um, there are there are three main things really. So, uh, developing uh, policy that's compatible with the end users is really, really important, uh, particularly from a sports perspective. I mean, there's been quite a lot of um, media surrounding uh, the requirement for uh, heat policies within sport. There are a lot of heat policies, and we're working with uh, certain organizations to try to refine and, and, and uh, improve those, those particular heat policies. Um, 
But having having those uh, in place are very important and making sure that the key to, to a good heat policy is ensuring that your that your that that it to avoid any any catastrophic events associated with athlete health but at the same time it's important to 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 to, to prevent interruptions or cancellations in play uh, uh, unnecessarily so it's really kind of a fine line because you, you need to balance those two considerations um uh, the second thing is, 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 is extreme heat policy with respect to the most vulnerable uh, in the general population associated with heat waves. That's a big, um, a, a big uh, area. Uh, a, a good example is the amount of information that we have on the interaction between different types of prescription medication and our capacity to keep cool uh, during extreme heat events. Um, uh, uh, the knowledge base is very, very shallow as far as that's concerned. So that's a, that's a big priority for us. Uh, moving forward. And one other thing that we're also looking at is um, trying to develop better ways of actually monitoring body temperature. So uh, we have this kind of uh, this idea of a universal core temperature, but that actually doesn't really exist. And um, and uh, the, the best ways of assessing deep body temperature are really quite invasive. Um, and uh, coming up with methods that are non-invasive is is really a priority. And it's something that we that that really do not exist. There are products that are available on the on the market, but uh, they're, they're generally really quite poor. So uh, we need to kind of work towards better solutions as far as that's concerned as well. Yeah, okay, fascinating. Well, look, uh, I'll leave it there. Um, yeah, uh, no worries. But uh, thank you so much for your time, Ollie. Um, I really no, appreciate hearing about your work and um, wish you all the best. Enjoy the tennis and I hope you get a little bit of work done. Thank you very much. Yeah, we'll... we'll uh, yeah, we'll have to keep uh, keep focused on uh, getting our, our measurements done, yeah. Yes, okay. Well, once again, Brilliant. thank you very much. All the best. All right, Hamish, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Science of the Local podcast, available on iTunes, soundcloud.com slash scienceofthelocal, and all good podcast providers. Science of the Local is not just a podcast. It's also a series of bi-monthly talks by expert and engaging scientists delivered in a cosy setting to the good folk of the Blue Mountains. To find out more, go to facebook.com slash science at the local. Science at the Local is run by me, Hamish Clark, and Kevin Joseph. We're supported by Springwood and Winmalee Neighbourhood Centres, and in 2017 by the Inspiring Australia Program of the Australian Government. By listening to this podcast, you accept our end-user licence agreement. Science is real from